Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Krulak community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best and innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, any other agency of the U.S. government, or any other agencies with which our guests and audience may be affiliated. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, we've all been watching, it's now in its third week, but it only took a few days of fighting for the world to see that Vladimir Putin's apparent hope for a rapid and generally bloodless victory had been shattered. Putin expected his soldiers to walk into Ukrainian cities and be welcomed with open arms. Instead, the Russian army is stalled along several fronts by stiff Ukrainian resistance, and many of the cities that were likely objectives for the first days of the war remain unconquered. But taking those cities remains a key goal for Putin, and the world is now watching as urban warfare takes center stage in this conflict. Cities like Mariupol and Kherson are either encircled or already at least partially occupied. Others like Kyiv and Kharkiv are being battered in preparation for attempts to seize them. And those like Odessa are wondering how long it will be before Russian ground forces reach their outskirts. To talk us through the unique and bitter challenges of urban warfare, as well as Russia's approach to it, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Rita Konayev. Dr. Konayev is a research fellow at Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, CSET, interested in military applications of artificial intelligence and Russian military innovation. Previously, she was a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point, a postdoctoral fellow at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House. Before joining CSET, she worked as a senior principal in the marketing and communication practice at Gartner. Her research on international security, armed conflict, non-state actors, and urban warfare in the Middle East, Russia, and Eurasia has been published by the Journal of Strategic Studies, the Journal of Global Security Studies, Conflict Management and Peace Science, the French Institute of International Relations, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Lawfare, War on the Rocks, Defense One, Modern War Institute, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and a range of other outlets. She holds a PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame, an MA in conflict resolution from Georgetown University, and a BA from Brandeis University. So Dr. Konyev, welcome to the program, and I'll turn it over to you for our initial presentation. Thank you, Major Brown, and thank you everyone for being here this morning. I want to start by lowering expectations. As Major Brown said, we are watching this situation unfold in real time, and things are changing from day to day. And a lot of what we thought to be true is being proven incorrect. Uh, as Major Brown mentioned in my bio, I focus on military applications of artificial intelligence and Russian military innovation, two areas that we have not seen play a big role in this conflict. So I've spent the last couple of years really focusing on the advances that Russia is implementing as part of its broader military modernization efforts especially in AI, robotics, unmanned vehicles, all that really interesting futuristic stuff that we thought that we were going to be dealing with for the next couple of years. And the last three weeks, I've been watching a completely different military from the one that I've been writing about. 
And I don't think I've been the only one to continuously be surprised and proven wrong on many of the fronts that pertain to these technological accomplishments. Unfortunately, the work that I've done on urban warfare and the work that I'm sure that many of you in the audience have been a part of, um, have proven itself to be much more appropriate and much more relevant. And as we all know, that is a sad reality and a sad story. And even more so when the intersection of Russia and urban warfare comes together, as the recent experience in Syria tell us, or is even not so recent experiences in Chechnya tell us, the devastation reaches catastrophic levels. And, and that is what we're fortunately again seeing in Ukraine right now. And in my pessimistic view to an extent, is something that is going to get worse before it gets better. So I want to start with where we kind of got things wrong, or at least what we were looking at, let's say, a month ago, as opposed to three weeks ago when we started to see the blunders. In many ways, the Russian military has had a set of experiences and a set of capabilities that has prepared it to fight effectively in cities, and to conduct the type of modern military uh, operations and urban terrain that we're currently witnessing or supposed to be witnessing. There is a range of historical uh, efforts as well as the recent experiences in Syria and Chechnya that have should inform their decision-making in approaching Ukrainian cities. Since the war in 2008 against Georgia, which Russia won, but has performed very poorly. Uh, the Russian military has been implementing a set of modernization efforts and reforms that meant to make it much more sophisticated in terms of its technological capabilities, operationally ready for deployment, real significant investments in ISR capabilities, advanced technologies there, electronic warfare is a topic that we've written about and thought about a lot. Um, other efforts to employ these combined arms elements and formations that have should have prepared it to face both conventional as well as, well as like uh, asymmetric and non-conventional opponents. We've seen some really interesting instances of tactical innovation in its deployments in Syria and uh, in Ukraine uh, previously, which combined different kinetic, cyber warfare, electronic warfare, uh, and information operations all together sequentially and simultaneously in really innovative, um, compelling ways that have led us to believe that they're putting a lot of their capabilities and learning to the test in the battlefield and are having success. Also, we know that from urban warfare doctrine, one of the big challenges of conducting military operations in cities is the presence of civilians. And that presence and the desire and the obligation under international law to safeguard civilian lives and to prevent harm and minimize collateral damage puts limits and more strict rules of engagement on the type of uh, weapons that can be used and the type of approaches to warfare that can be employed. We know that Russia has not been abiding by those methods and has generally, you know, adopted much more looser rules of engagement in cities, which to an extent has given it more freedom of operation and ability to reach some of its goals in Syria, for better or worse. 
well, of course. We've also seen Russia undertake and conduct quite successful and sophisticated information operations, which has given us an idea of how it might approach its next campaign and its next conflict, where information is bound to play a significant role, as we know in urban operations and for the impact of information is amplified because of the visibility of cities and the connectivity of cities. And given Russia's previous success in the information realm, there were relatively high expectations and assumptions about how it's going to fight on that front. I don't think it's going to surprise anybody who's you know checked the news over the last three weeks to say that a lot of our assumptions that have been grounded in real, you know, close watching and studying of the Russian military have not panned out. And if anything, the war in Ukraine is really demonstrating the limits of Russian power, of Russian military capabilities in general, and more specifically in this context of urban warfare, as the war has shifted to cities. This delayed and limited employment of the crux and the core of Russian approaches to uh, military operations most recently, where it has had the success with these battalion tactical groups, its advanced ISR assets, we're not seeing any of that. We're seeing very limited efforts to uh, use combined arms formations, which we know are necessary for success in urban warfare. None of it is really being utilized. I've said before that in many ways, I feel like I'm watching a completely different military fight than the one that I've been studying. And with, you know, with the caveat that I could have been studying very wrongly and probably deserve an F on my education, but again, I don't think I'm the only one to have made these assumptions and uh, have seen them kind of fall to pieces over the last three weeks. Based on these endless videos of tanks uh, exploding that we're seeing that are advancing down a road with complete disregard uh, for protection and any sort of basic tactics of cover, let alone concealment, we're really not seeing any sort of discernible knowledge or something that's been learned in experience or training of urban warfare tactics. In a really strange and bizarre development, there's some evidence that indicates some reports that show that Russia has even reached out to the Syrians to bring them on to do some of the urban fighting because the Syrians are the ones that have that ground experience apparently, more so than the, this newly sophisticated and engaged Russian military. Sure, we're increasingly seeing these looser rules of engagement and even more extensive bombardment and disregard for its effect on the population, but where previously that might have had some tactical and even operational effects, we're right now seeing nothing but destruction. And if anything, that those types of attacks are helping Ukraine to win on the information front. And more broadly, in looking at Russia's ability to conduct the information war and to shape public opinion around the world, it's been struggling. And struggling, I think, is even a nice term to describe it. It's really fundamentally seems to be losing on the information war front uh, in an area that we've seen it really succeed before. So what is happening? How can we make sense of this poor performance? 
is this just the collapse of the Russian military? Is this a Russia-specific problem? Or is this a broader problem that is interlinked with how difficult it is to fight in an urban context? And is it something that can, that can influence the United States in its future deployment? These are things that, like I said, we should all be questioning a lot of our assumptions and the lessons that we continue to learn from this war should really inform how we approach the entire idea of, of the strategic competition, the future of warfare, the role of technology, the role of cities, all of these broad questions. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to address all of them right now, but in the back of our head, as we're kind of reviewing the Russian experience, I would really want to make the point that Russia is not alone in making blunders and Russia is not alone in struggling to fight in cities. It's something to keep in the back of our minds. Uh, can the Russian military recover? We're now having the conversation about the supposedly you know, impending siege on Kiev and some of the other key Ukrainian cities. How is this going to play out? Looking back into Russian experience in Chechnya and in Syria, what should we be expecting? And finally, what is happening here with the information front? How are they struggling so much? Why are they struggling so much? Is it just the fact that pre in previous efforts, they have conducted most of their information attacks during peacetime outside of their experience in Ukraine, let's say, or have they been targeting Western democracies and have more success there? But when it's intermingled with an ongoing war, and it's very much more difficult to deny the nature of reality as we are witnessing these uh, you know, re direct reports and direct footage of devastating attacks on cities. Why is Russia performing so poorly on the information front? And maybe actually, is it performing that poorly on the information front? Or is it just our information ecosystem and our own pre-support assumptions that make us really, you know, assume and conclude that it's not doing that well on the information front. So I want to kind of quickly reflect on some of these points. And again, uh, to say that this is perhaps my first real attempt to articulate some of these thoughts. So please be patient with me. And more than anything, I'm looking forward and learning from you um, as I you know, relearn a lot of the, these fundamentals and question a lot of these assumptions going forward. I think, and it seems increasingly likely that people share this conclusion that a great deal of the challenges Russia is facing right now in its war in Ukraine come from absolute failure to plan, prepare, and provide for an urban campaign. And we can talk about you know, in the Q&A, we can talk about what explains these failures, but the fact that they are happening are undeniable. And it's effectively this level of negligence when it comes to an urban fight can set the tone to an abjunct failure that is perhaps not possible to recover from. We know that urban warfare is incredibly manpower intensive that you burn through resources and equipment in no time, that it's insanely costly, and that it has a tendency to become protracted and time-consuming and devolve into wars of attrition. Because of that, having accurate 
capability assessment early in the game. And obviously no plan and no assessment survives the first confrontation of reality. But in this situation, the failure to plan is really planning for failure. So having these as much as possible accurate capabilities assessment, not only about the potential enemy, but about your own capabilities is absolutely critical. And that early intelligence, like I said, can set the tone for the entire campaign. We also know that because of the high casualty rates and this high levels of equipment attrition, you need to be thinking about logistical support and sustainment efforts early on and throughout the entire campaign. And failing to do so is going to make what is already an manpower intensive costly and time consuming situation much worse and finally this aspect of the information environment is even much more is even more important to tackle when it comes to cities because of the visibility of cities like i said and because of the connectivity of cities and we're seeing this play out in real time on our phones in ways that you know even during the operations against ISIS, the wars in Iraq and in Syria and Afghanistan, in Gaza or Yemen, all of those wars that were to an extent fought online, the level of information, the level of open source intelligence right now, through satellites, through personal phones, through personal devices, seems unprecedented. So being able to shape that information environment to ensure a favorable response from the population at home, from the population in the battlefield, in the battle zone, and from the world more broadly, is really essential for setting the tone of the campaign and ensuring uh, success going forward. Clearly, Russia has fundamentally failed in its efforts, if any such have even happened, to prepare, plan, or provide for this war that it's experiencing right now. It's clear that what was informing them going into Ukraine was deeply flawed assumptions and capability assessments. And in many ways, the parallels to the first Chechen war, when Russia, uh, when the Russian military rolled into Chechnya uh, with the ambition of taking Grozny and with the, this idea that the entire country would succumb just because of a show of force is playing itself out again in a way that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we can talk again about what informed these flawed assumptions and what accounts for them. But when you take into the fact that the Russian military back then was this remnant of the Soviet Union that was absolutely collapsing and was in a horrific state to the Russian military that we're supposed to be dealing with right now, it's incredibly alarming to think that all of that professionalization and modernization and all of these efforts that went in into making it a highly ready and highly capable force have led to the same flawed assumptions and capability assessments and lack of intelligence to prepare for something that they know from experience is going to be horrific. 
we're seeing massive, you know, it's very hard to judge uh, the viability or the, I guess, the reliability of the resources and estimates of uh, military casualties or civilian casualties at this point. Uh, and everybody's providing different numbers. But regardless of who you're looking to, it seems increasingly clear that we're dealing with massive military casualties at an extremely high rate. And the equipment losses are probably even worse. And despite encountering all of this, we're seeing very limited improvements to the logistical support and even less indication that there's an ongoing effort to provide sustainment for the long term, which they're going to need with how this operation is going. Another layer here are these early information blunders. They have failed to prepare the area of operations in terms of the information environment. They have failed to sway public opinion to justify this war. And they're effectively are failing in every step of the way in kind of shaping the publics that they need outside of their own public. And we'll talk about that later to understand what they're trying to accomplish, why they are fighting, what is the narrative that is driving this, and what do they want to accomplish, really. So on all of these fronts that require preparation, very careful planning, and sufficient provisions, not only just for the early stages of the campaign, but for the campaign throughout, we're seeing absolute underperformance, which is, again, something that is reminiscent of a days that the Russian military seemed like it had no future. As we've seen some shift in tactics, and as Major Brown said early on, given that the Russians have failed in this idea that a quick show of force is going to lead to whatever the political objectives they had in mind for Ukraine, and that we're seeing this massive resistance from the Ukrainian military and the population and the world more broadly that's supporting and supplying Ukraine. There's now the conversation has shifted to siege warfare and siege tactics. And we know siege warfare to be an imperative and inseparable part of urban operations to the fact that urban warfare doctrine tells us that in order to win, you have to be able to physically and at an informational level to isolate a city. Having said that, it's worth having a broader discussion about whether it's something like this to physically, let alone at an information level, is it even possible to isolate a modern city in the way that modern wars are fought because of the integration of cities into regional and global economies because of size and density of modern cities, because of the number of different ways and approaches to modern cities, because of the periphery, the urban, suburban uh, areas around cities, because of the number and the capacity and the logistical support that it would take to even attempt something like that. So our idea of siege warfare in many ways is really disconnect, disconnected from the reality of modern cities 
And I'm not even getting into all of this is at the physical dimension. I'm not even getting into the information dimension that the idea that you can isolate a modern city at an information level by blocking all sorts of communications that are coming out of there is increasingly unrealistic. And even in countries that, even in Russia right now, which is imposing all of these strict uh, rules and uh, isolating itself uh, to ensure that it's uh, public can't access information from anywhere around the world except for the Russian government. There's still plenty of Russian citizens on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and on TikTok and on all of these other platforms. Uh, some of them are able to connect with the rest of the world and get their information from other places and tell you know, the world in, in return what is happening in Russia. Um, the notion that you can do that in modern environments is really not truly sustainable or executable to a great extent. What do we know about Russian siege warfare and Russian urban warfare more broadly in its last experiences in Chechnya and Syria? And I think it's really fundamental to understand that the way that even though it's not directly mentioned or spelled out in Russian doctrine, the experience on the ground demonstrate that it's destruction and depopulation, this forced displacement of people out of urban environments is how Russia sees its ability to fight and win in cities. It's not something you're going to see in doctrine, but it is something that we've seen on the ground. And that is how it approaches both siege warfare and urban warfare more broadly. Russia's approach to siege tactics has really evolved, or at least on paper until now we have seen it evolve, uh, based on its first real unsuccessful experience trying to lay a siege on Grozny during the first Chechen war. And the fact that the city was never really taken, let alone sealed, and that there was continuous influx of fighters and resupplies coming into Grozny. And even at a point after the point, after the initial campaign was concluded, and Grozny was pacified to an extent through this, like I mentioned, the destruction and depopulation that took place, uh, the Chechen rebels were able to make a comeback in uh, 1995 and 1996 by, I kid you not, kidnapping a train, hijacking a train and driving it back into Grozny to the central train station, which remained unguarded and remained a very clear point of access back into the city. So the lessons that Russians have learned from the first Chechen war when it comes to this siege approach in the context of urban warfare is that if you can't take a city like that, uh, that you can't hermetically seal it to prevent the influx of fighters and resources in there, you can bomb it, you can destroy it, and you can cause the population to either die in its ruins or flee. And one way or another, that is how you will secure it. So in the second Chechen war, there was a much longer siege that was implemented on Grozny, but it wasn't just the siege alone. It was that massive artillery and aerial bombardment campaign. And by the time that the Russian uh, 
have entered the city and began, you know, broke this, effectively broke the siege and started the ground operations more along the lines of that house to house, street by street fighting that we envision when we talk about urban combat. There were barely any people left. There were about 20,000 to 30,000 people left in 1999 from a city that, according to, you know, in the pre first war days, was about 400,000. So destruction and depopulation is how Russia won Chechnya. And it's also how Russia helped win in Syria. We know that in Syria by 2017, you had more than 5 million people who were subjected to siege warfare and were effectively denied access to food. So while siege warfare itself, for example, is not, uh, is not a war crime, is not against international humanitarian law, starvation as a method of warfare and the consequence of siege warfare is in fact a war crime. And that's something that we've witnessed used profusely throughout the Syrian campaign. And we've seen the implementation of these sieges on Aleppo, on Isergota, and other, other, many other Damascus suburbs. And the role that Russia played in these sieges is actually very important to understand because they had minimal involvement in the ground operations themselves, where the burden was, you know, conducted by the Syrian forces and their uh, related Shia militias. But the Russian forces were mostly responsible for the air campaign. And there we, you know, this crown doesn't need an introduction to the Syria uh, war, but there were very clear specific targeting of civilian infrastructure and using the type of means and methods of warfare, the type of weaponry that ensured maximum levels of destruction and maximum displacement. And lo and behold, Assad is still in power, even though for many years there, a lot of people believe that would not, not be possible. And Russia played a key role there using its, what in that theater were considered superior artillery and air capabilities in support of these siege tactics. And Unfortunately, I think that some of these experiences are what we're going to be seeing in Ukraine going forward. So what, what is going on right now in Ukraine? How are we seeing some of these siege and urban warfare tactics implemented on the ground? The most extensive use, especially of the siege, uh, is around the city of Mariupol. And we're already seeing the humanitarian catastrophe that it's causing. Uh, people there have not had access to food to electricity, to heat. This is winter in Eastern Europe. Not having access to heat is a death sentence. Um, and we're, we're watching what even an incomplete and non-hermetic siege can, um, you know, can, the effect that it can have on a city. And to an extent, in some ways, Mariupol is unique because it's positioned in the South and it's closer to Russian logistical um, capabilities than uh, Kiev, let's say, and Mariupol is smaller than Kiev. So in some ways it is a good candidate to implement a successful siege campaign. At the same time, there are reasons to believe that that is what's coming 
towards um, Ukraine's other cities. Russia right now is struggling to move towards Kiev. It's bogged down in the peripheral areas that are around Kiev in these uh, essentially the urban suburbs that are around Kiev. And there the Ukrainian resistance is really fighting on urban defense by the book. And it's been doing everything that they can in blocking the progress of the Russian uh, armored column and implementing these other tactics that are, you know, effectively not letting them move, um, demolishing bridges that lead to the city, digging trenches, erecting these barricades, including using concrete. Uh, so they're doing everything in their power to really put up as good of a defense as possible. And we know that in the urban context and urban warfare, defense has the advantage. And the read from there, especially not only does defense have the advantage, but we're talking about highly motivated, extremely well-supplied resistance. So in many ways, there are good reasons to believe that Kiev and some of the other cities can in fact hold and can survive even under more extensive siege if Russia gets its act together and begins resupplying its troops in a better way and uh, resolve some of these uh, sustainment challenges. But the question remains is for how long is that going to be possible and at what costs? And I think in this, to answer those questions, you have to look back at Chechnya and Syria to get a sense of the cost and to get a sense of how long these campaigns and these protracted confrontations can last and what are the costs to the country and to these cities more specifically and individually. Finally, I wanna say a few words about Russia's disinformation efforts because of the centrality that information plays in urban warfare and how important it is generally to get the messaging right. Uh, if you're wondering if it's just a Russian problem on the disinformation angle, I'm sure that many of you know and familiar with the fact that there was a Fallujah 1 and a Fallujah 2. Uh, one of the big reasons for that was the fact that this, the information campaign was not effectively implemented. So failing on the information war, and we've seen this in Israel's case uh, again and again, um, in other, other countries, other democracies have experienced these challenges as well. So in this regard, this is not really a fundamentally a Russia problem. It's an information in an urban context, the problem as well. So I think the narratives, the main narratives that Russia has been trying to advance in the, as it was, you know, progressing towards this war, but also now continuously throughout to justify this invasion and to give it some sort of credibility and uh, kind of get a lot of the West um, off its back in terms of the sanctions and uh, the condemnation that it's facing uh, are familiar because we've been hearing them for years, if not decades but also because they've been very much amplified uh, recently all throughout. It's the idea of the NATO betrayal and the threat to Russia. It's the notion that Ukraine is a shell, uh, a Western shell, 
and not an actual independent democratic country. The particularly ridiculous and absurd argument that Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian politics is dominated by Nazi ideology, which is one of the many reasons that this is a ridiculous argument, is the fact that the president of Ukraine is Jewish. And these other, you know, concocted claims about genocide in Eastern Ukraine against Russians, which is also has not been documented or proven by any other entity except for Russian. Um, this messaging, if it seems ridiculous or concocted or even surreal in many ways to many observers here in the United States and in Europe and to the audience maybe as well, if it doesn't make sense to you, part of the reason that it doesn't make sense to you is that it's not made for you. It's not really aimed at you. That messaging is primarily aimed at Russia's own public. This is a domestic attempt to shape the information environment, to shape the public opinion in Russia. Another lesson that Russia learned from its first war in Chechnya is the importance of maintaining favorable public opinion at home during a war, which is it's struggling to do, but it's succeeding there more, I think, than we would like to believe. Some of this messaging is also meant towards Ukraine with the hope, still hope that they're holding out that there are significant parts of Ukraine that would rather be on the Russian side than in any sort of a country that is either independent or is part of the West. Uh, this is less directed towards the West writ large, but it is directed towards particular elements in the West which we'll talk about in a second, who have already been cultivated as purveyors of, of Russian propaganda. And in this way, Russian disinformation campaigns, whether it's in a peace context or a war context or an urban war context more specifically, they should not be treated as a one-off. They should be regarded as cumulative. And the fact that they build on previous campaigns really shows in how they influence some of the information environment in the West. So is Russia losing the information war? Is something that, you know, I've said before, um, and a lot of people who are watching this space and are seeing some of these surreal, unrealistic, uh, inexcusable narratives being advanced and publicized alongside of this terrible humanitarian suffering and a completely unprovoked invasion. Um, it does seem like Russia is losing, at least among the West for the most part, and obviously in Ukraine. Uh, the US allies, uh, the United States and its allies have been really proactive in releasing intelligence to, uh, you know, blunt any sort of uh, Russian efforts at false flag operations as a pretext for the invasion. But also most recently, we saw some of that with regards to the chemical labs. The Ukraine leadership, it really is, goes without saying, is giving a masterclass in how to shape the information environment, even to a point where we're no longer really even fact checking anything that is coming out of the Ukrainian leadership, even though we really should be, because for all 
you know, for all the well-placed and well-meaning sympathy that we have uh, and for the fact that we should be supporting them and rooting for them, they are fighting for their survival and they have incentives to present a particular narrative that we should be uh, more um, questionable about and make sure that we verify our information there as well. And finally, the social media companies are also being proactive and taking steps against Russian disinformation, which shows you where there is a will, there is indeed, in fact, a way. Having said all of that, I want to say two points that undermine this narrative that Russia is losing the information war. Disinformation is going to continue to land and have a hold on Russian public opinion. Even though we're seeing incre these incredible resistance and these protests and a lot of uh, prominent Russians have come out against this war and a lot of ordinary regular people are risking imprisonment and maybe worse uh, in protesting the war. The majority of Russian public opinion is still likely going to buy in and continue buying in into these narratives because it's been fed that for decades and it increasingly has less access to any sort of alternative sources of information. Moreover, as the sanctions begin to take hold and we're going to be seeing a worsening economic conditions, we're going to be witnessing essentially a fulfillment of a self-fulfilling prophecy because Putin has been warning the Russian people for decades now that the West is out to destroy Russia and bring it to its knees. And now as the sanctions take hold and Russian economy collapses and Russia is brought to its knees, he's going to be right. And second, because the lines have completely been blurred between domestic and foreign disinformation in the United States as well as in Europe, we're witnessing a really disturbing phenomena, a really disturbing phenomena where Russian government and Russian media are not even doing the propaganda themselves anymore as much when it comes to Western audiences. More so, what they're doing are amplifying influential US voices who reinforce narratives, whether it's about the fact that Ukraine is not actually a democracy, that Ukraine is a state of the West, or the NATO expansion narrative. There's absolutely room for public debate about all of these issues, and this is a free country, and there's a free media, but I think it's important to not ignore these voices and these actors that span the political spectrum. So we can't even necessarily make a partisan statement here because clearly it's coming from all directions. But they are providing, whether intentionally or unintentionally, they're providing legitimacy to Russian disinformation around the world in the United States and to the Russian public. And this is why I said what I said about the disinformation campaigns being cumulative. Over time, these domestic actors are taking the lead in shaping the information environment in Russia's favor. So whatever Russia is not successfully doing, these people are helping. So I'd like to conclude by saying that we're, unfortunately, I think, are in it for a long haul because we know that urban warfare is a protracted, long and brutal fight 
And I don't think that this one is going to play out any differently. I think it's really far from being over. If we're trying to understand Russian blunders and its poor performance thus far, the fact that it failed to plan, prepare, provision, accurately assess its own capabilities and the capabilities of their adversaries has set off the campaign to a terrible start. That said, that doesn't mean that they can't adjust or that they can't sustain losses or that they can't sustain a protracted campaign. So just because things are going poorly, that doesn't mean this is the end of it. We talked about siege tactics, having some limits in urban, in urban situations and urban campaigns. So that's why I don't think we're going to be seeing something like the full encirclement of Kiev, but more likely we're gonna be seeing some sort of a part of siege that is targeting these key resupply routes and entryways combined with even more aggressive artillery and aerial bombardment with horrifying humanitarian and long-term consequences for Ukrainian society. And finally, on this information angle, which is critical, Ukraine right now is winning the information warfare worldwide. I don't think you can debate that. But that doesn't really mean that Russia is losing. It just means that it's fighting on a different terrain. Russian disinformation campaigns are landing at home. They will continue to resonate there as the situation gets worse. And even more disturbingly, they're getting international credibility from influential American and European voices who are reinforcing and providing credibility to Russian narratives. So this is something that we can't ignore, nor should we, because it's something that we're also gonna be dealing with in the next war. Thank you. I think we have a little time left for questions and I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. All right, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Connie. That was a, a great presentation. And uh, to those in our audience, yeah, as mentioned, we, we do wanna take your questions. So if you have some, uh, please go ahead and start throwing them in the chat. Um, Ma'am, I will say that I do have a, uh, we have General Nan here who it's not so much a question, but um, he has some thoughts. He's a actually a, a former Colonel in the Ukrainian military who was a Marine Corps University student a few years back and who was put in touch with us by uh, one of the professors. Um, so I didn't know he was going to be in the audience, but he had just asked for a couple minutes to maybe share some of his personal experiences on urban combat there. So I'll let him get a chance to do that. But first, I want to make sure we, we get to questions. Um, uh, I've got one and I've got somebody else just putting it in the chat, so I'll, I'll, I'll go real quick and then get to that one. Um, but it, it, it sort of looked fusing together the, you know, Russia sort of maybe they didn't expect to have to fight in multiple urban environments at the same time. But, you know, we know that they, they've done it before. You know, they, they have a, a playbook, so they probably had some reasonable expectation that would be urban combat. Um, but but tying in that as well with the apparent um, you know, our perspective, not, not as effective an information campaign as well, a, as well as a comparatively superior Ukrainian information campaign. Um, two parts to this one. Um, what, why do you, what, what assumptions do you think, you know, Putin and the Russian military made that they could somehow enter into, you know, multiple urban combat scenarios in an information environment that was probably more, you know, one more saturated with personal devices than probably, you know, certainly than what they had in Chechnya because they just weren't as proliferated, you know, back then. You know, but even as recently as Aleppo, more personal electronic devices that could capture the things they were doing, um, as well as a more robust communications architecture in Ukraine as compared to those other countries. 
why did they do you think they still thought they could effectively somehow you know conduct both effective urban and information operations when all of the the bad things they were about to do that they've done before were going to get you know augmented and blasted out to a wider wider audience and then sort of second piece is in comparison to how ukraine has leveraged all of those things to get their message out um do you do you think that there is there some level of sort of cultural or official training or doctrine on how to use information in both ukrainian society and military because in watching it to me at least it seems like this is not something they can just do sort of like ad hoc like it looks like there 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 was some practice and some preparation going into their ability to from day one conduct offensive information uh campaigns that's kind of a, a large two-part question but um that's uh that's our first one here Okay, I'll give it a go and try to be quick. So I think uh, the expectation was that it was that the information campaign and these efforts to say that we are here to stop a genocide, we are here to denazify the country, we are here to liberate you from this awful, repressive, you know, non-democratic, fake regime, are going to do enough work to prevent stage two. So they approach information warfare as a way to achieve political outcomes without the use of military force. So to an extent, I think the expectation was that they're gonna play on the information space and have the military might there as a backup, uh, as a deterrent of any sort of military resistance. And that clearly failed. And the pathologies are numerous. It's uh, you know, it's flawed and um, dysfunctional civil military relations. It's the fact that there is absolutely no trust between the ranks, among the ranks, between the political leadership and the military leadership. It's the fact that there is no culture of saying, I disagree, or this doesn't make sense, or red teaming, or thinking through, you know, giving that type of like openness to question. Uh, it just doesn't exist. and. It's it's the type of group think that I think has uh, undermined any sort of real efforts at professionalization. Um, and something that is worth keeping in mind for the United States as well, uh, because no organization is free from those types of biases. So this is to say that I think they were expecting that the information space, their warfare there is going to prevent any sort of military use and the presence of 200,000 Russian troops with even old tanks is going to deter any sort of resistance. In terms of the effectiveness and coordination of the Ukrainian um, you know, information playbook, the coordination has been phenomenal and I agree with you, it wasn't born or made in a day because they've had since 2014 really to one way or another prepare for this. I don't think anybody was prepared to do this on this type of scale and this type of level of destruction and danger, but there are also other elements in place that create a more favorable environment for Ukrainian information operations than to counter uh, to, as, as opposed to or compared to Russian information operations. And it's the fact that this is a fully unprovoked war. 
It's the fact that civilians are targeted and are very visible on the battlefield. It's the fact that their president turned out to be, you know, the last American action hero. Uh, that, that sort of leadership has really not been seen in any, in any recent military confrontations. And it's inspiring. So I think it's hitting all of these points and it's arriving at a positive reception that's already predisposed to accept that. Uh, so, but I imagine the playbook to one extent or another has been there since 2014 or has been written. It's just hitting these levels of success because of just the starkness of the situation too. Okay, thank you. Um, you got a bunch more questions here, and, and there's some similar themes, so I'm going to try and package some of them together. Um, but I'll make sure we credit everyone in the audience who's asking. So two questions, um, one from Amos Fox and another from Ryan Sullivan that are sort of related. So um, this goes back to your uh, your point that you're, you're not seeing the Russian army that you've been studying. Um, so the, the questions kind of go into why do you, you know, maybe why, why that has been the case? Because I think that's certainly been the, the case for a lot of folks, you know, our, ourselves in the, the military educational sphere included, having certain assumptions about, you know, the Russian military from, you know, you know, good, intelligent, intensive study, but we were all wrong or, or at least incomplete. So um, a couple of thoughts they have possibly on why that might be the case is one is, do you think that perhaps that uh, we conflated a perception that the tactics, operations, and force structures that were successful in a smaller theater, like the 2014-15 Donbass, or or even the um, the sort of related Nagorno-Karabakh war, do you think do you think we simply conflated some things that worked there, thinking they would work on a larger scale, um, or do you think that um, is there a possibility Russia is withholding the employment of some of the more advanced technologies like the ones you've studied in terms of, you know, artificial intelligence, other emergent technologies. Um, it, you know, it's been noted they haven't seemed to be using precision munitions that we know that they have sort of in the, the, in the volume that we expected. Um, do, do any of those things explain maybe why we're, we're not seeing the Russian army, we thought? Yeah, all of those things make absolute sense. And part of the, you know, the set of explanations I've been hearing and resonate with me. I think another thing is that, well, I, I don't know if uh, if you guys have access to uh, classified information and what is the analysis that you drew out of there, but with access only to open source information and Russian sources, you see in many ways what you are fed, what you are made to see. Uh, we drew a lot of assumptions from the military exercises and the train and the, but the big strategic, you know, annual military exercises. But those are rehearsed events. Nobody's going to put up that massive, like, level, extensive show of force military exercise and perform terribly there and then show, you know, show all of their flaws and problems to the world. A lot of the premise behind these military exercises, much of it is deterrence. So there we're going to showcase the most advanced set of capabilities. Another issue is that I think that a lot of us, myself included, really kind of underplayed the point that artificial intelligence, advanced autonomous robotics are at the experimentation stage. 
they have not been adopted on any large scale. They have not been integrated into those legacy systems. The United States is, uh, uh, is facing a lot of the same problems, bureaucracy, procurement reform, uh, budgeting, culture, all of these issues that are, you know, kind of putting a barrier to any sort of modernization efforts at scale, uh, let alone AI across the defense uh, community and infrastructure. So I think a good reminder is to distinguish between what we envision to be the wars of the future to the wars that we're likely to see in the immediate, uh, you know, the next couple of years. But the other thing is that technology usually doesn't play that much of a role in urban warfare, because the urban terrain we know throughout history really humbles technologically sophisticated advanced militaries. So it was not, maybe not even the theater for it, uh, which is something, again, to remember for the United States. But I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna walk away from this with this idea that the Russian military is a paper tiger uh, type. What's it called? Is it a paper tiger? Yeah. So like we've we've overblown and we misread and we all of those things are correct. But the worst thing that we can do is to make that same mistake of underestimating our opponents. If anything to be learned from here is to continuously question your assumptions and assessments. Yeah, uh, that actually uh, I've I've seen on Twitter something that Michael Coffin has been saying a lot now is like, you know, he's had to reevaluate, you know, the Russians are not 12 feet tall, but we also want to, we can't go thinking they're only four feet tall either. Yeah. So um, the next couple, uh, I'm bundling together from Lance Davies and Jeffrey Horn here, and this is getting into sort of the Russian approach to urban warfare. And, you know, they, they take a particularly brutal approach to it, as we've seen historically and uh, you know, we're hoping we don't see it here, but it's always it's certainly a risk. So um, in your assessment, do you, I guess the questions are kind of like, where does this Russian approach to it come from? Uh, do you think that this was a, a deliberately developed model, sort of, you know, a Russian doctrinal model of how to do urban combat to make it as violent, as brutal as possible? Do you think it's a, uh, or do they take a pragmatic or contextual approach? You know, maybe they do different things to different cities. Or do you think that... Uh, the, you know, the looser rules of engagement are potentially a statement about the lack of professionalization in the Russian military. Like they're just not good enough to conduct, you know, more, more targeted urban operations that are not, you know, deliberately destructive. Um, and then, and then with that, do you think that there's any control measures in the Russian military leadership that can, can actually, you know, ethically manage violence or do they, are they, are they unable to do that or unwilling to do that? No, I think they are able to do that and they have been choosing to do that actually in Ukraine and you can see that and that's a differentiation between what you said, how they contextualize. So there are elements of that and there's clear visibility and we keep hearing, you know, uh, Ukraine is not Syria, Ukraine is not Chechnya, there are certain things that you could get away with in the Middle East and against certain populations that you can do against a European country and European cities and European people. Um, that is true to a level. Uh, at the same time, as the war progresses and they are facing these 
logistical issues. They are not accomplishing their goals through this massive bombardment. You know, these other these other types of approaches. It is very likely that the violent levels of violence will increase and expand. Uh, in terms of whether they don't have the ability or the professionalization not to cause that levels of damage, perhaps. But you know, I think um, he's not on the call anymore. But Amos has written about the cumulative effect of precision strikes and the fact that when you take together what precision attacks can do to a city, the effect is really not that different from what imprecise weaponry does to a city, which is something that we really need to think about carefully because it's part of the stories that we tell ourselves and the myths that we believe as opposed to how other countries approach warfare. Obviously, the rules of engagements are quite different, but there is also a distance between rules of engagement and theory and how war is fought in real life and the real life implications of it at, at, and as it accumulates. Um, hopefully that kind of answers that. I'm also really interested to hear from your Ukrainian colleague who might have a very different perspective from what I described, which would be very educational from that, you know, questioning your assumptions point of view. Okay, yeah. All right. So on that note, actually, I will uh, I was just chatting with him. Um, I, I do I, I do want to get him on a uh, mm -hmm. on a separate episode. Um, but I, I if if you want to get his comments, we'll we'll take a couple of minutes here because uh, I, I know we have we all have some competing things coming up, but so the gentleman out there, so that's uh, Alexander Shevchenko. He's a retired colonel of the general staff of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Um, so, sir, if you want to go ahead and come on the mic here for just a couple minutes and maybe share um, some of your own experiences and thoughts on, on this environment. And uh, you have my promise that we're going to get you on a future episode here shortly so you can expand on this at length. So go ahead, sir. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm really glad to, to join to your discussion. Um, there's many th uh, things which, uh, which I can share with you, with you guys. Uh, speaking about, but I will stay focused on uh, urban warfare. Uh, the, the main issue why the Russian troops fail to uh, to 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 seize or to penetrate to the, uh, the large uh, Ukraine cities because, first of all, uh, that scenario we've been prepared since 2017 uh every every year we conduct strategic exercise i was a, a battle captain on that exercise every year and we play the same scenario which is going on right now in ukraine so we pretty much understand what's going on since the first minute of the russian invasion uh, second things the difference between syria or chechnya in Ukraine, we apply completely different tactics to defense Ukraine. So yes, that there is no castles can hold forever against those uh, enemy forces. We, we knew that from the beginning. We do have a troops in, in every uh, big city. They not confine themselves in the city because that troops we call terrain uh, terrain troops. That's uh, troops consist of their local people who perfectly know the city. They have a, uh, a combat experience from the previous years. 
uh, and also they added by the locals, people who wants to fight against the Russian. So that's troops stay inside of the city. However, we have a combat brigades which operate outside of the city, and they make it in a uh, and they strike. They strike logistic lines, logistic bases, and they strike as the forces, Russian forces coming towards the the, the sea, the, the cities. And that's number one. Second things, uh, specifically sp speaking about Kiev, in the first day, the, the first troops appearing uh, in front of the Kiev, that was a, a Russian Russian National Guard, because they thought we, we, they will easily penetrate to Kiev because population is kind of going to greet them. But the Russian National Guard is uh, was trained only to deal with the riots and looting. Not of the, to, they they are not prepared to to fight against the regular brigades, combat brigades, and we destroyed most of them. And now we're dealing with the combat brigades of Russian army. But the problem is there is a terrain which is a heavy terrain. They they are able to uh, to move only along the ro uh, the roads, which is quite narrow. And there is a big uh, big uh, uh, woods and forest which we use on our favor. Um, we have uh, inside of the Kiev. We have 30,000 troops of trained forces. Based on the book, the enemy, in, a, in order to um, to take over the, the uh, Kiev, they have to bring about 300,000 troops to uh, to break up our defense in Kiev, which is not no, uh, which is not going to happen because uh, the whole uh, amount of the Russian troops was 170,000. Uh, plus, they. Uh, I, I was so surprised when we realized in a tactical level between, like, uh, the communication between uh, squads, platoons, between tanks. They still, most of them, they still use an analog radio station, which is quite useless in uh, urban areas with a high, uh, multiple store buildings, with a lot of interference, interference going on in a city. We also surprised. We were surprised that. Uh, when we captured the POWs, we we saw we, we found that that uh, the paper maps and it's the old paper maps with the old names of the cities and streets which we uh, when we uh, like a long time ago we changed the names because we call it decommunization. So and that falls just simply lost. They they have no clue where to go. They're looking for the, some 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 cities, some streets, but they don't exist. They couldn't see them. And that's make a kind of panic on them as well. And psychologically, the troops are not prepared psychologically to fight in a city because that's the most in intensive firefight and most scary. Uh, that's a very close firefight. When you see the enemy, when you shoot him and see a lot of dead bodies, that's something which you have to, to be prepared based on my experience when I was in a uh, deployed next to the Gorlovka in the east. And also, also the, uh, except of the national uh, national Russian National Guard, uh, the combat brigades consist of the uh, fifty percent of the troops of the combat brigades of Russian forces consist of the conscript soldiers. Most of them spend uh, no more than a month in the army. That also makes a negative uh, effect on on the Russian troops as well. That's my short comments for that. All right, sir. Um, thank you very much. And we we're definitely going to get you on here um, as soon as we can, so we can get um, a lot more detail from you on your on that perspective and your experiences. Because I think that'd be very valuable for our audience. 
Um, so, uh, Dr. Coney, I got one, one last quick question I'll get to you and then uh, we'll, we'll call it a day. And it's from uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Manuel Zapata, who's our Deputy Director at the Krulak Center. And uh, this is a question about sort of the information campaign that, that you've talked about, and it's been covered in a lot, several of our last episodes. Um, you know, so the, you mentioned that we should be mindful of the information that is coming from Ukraine. And, uh, and you know, this, this sort of echoes something uh, I think it was on Friday, we had uh, Matthew Ford and um, Andrew Hoskins talking specifically about the social media and the, you know, the smartphone usage there in that, as, as you said, you were, uh, what was it? You were, you know, we're being, we see what we're being fed and we're not seeing the whole picture. Um, you know, something that the gentleman on Friday said was, um, a lot of the videos are sort of post-combat, so we're not seeing actual, you know, firefights and engagements. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, the capture tanks and blown up stuff afterwards, but we're not seeing some of the, you know, the ugly things, you know, the Ukrainian casualties and losses that are likely happening. So uh, sort of keeping that in mind, uh, you know, each side has a story that it is trying to tell and convey, um, some more successfully than others. But so what, what do you think is the, the best perspective, you know, for us here? Who are not engaged in directly in this war to have when we're when we understand each side is is telling a narrative. I'll answer, and it would be interesting to hear from you as well. Of course, um, I think it's important to question everything, and that it that puts a lot of uh, pressure and onerous on the consumer of the information, and. We live in a society where we kind of have been slacking off with how careful we are with how we consume information. So suddenly getting really careful and cognizant and analytical about what we're seeing is a heavy lift. But I think it's an important one because what we're witnessing coming out of Russia seems to not resonate with a lot of people and at the same time it clearly is resonating with a decent amount of folks uh, who are placed in various influential positions so assumptions about narratives landing and narratives not landing need to be questioned the second point is about what is coming out of ukraine in terms of um, casualty assessments and other information especially the stuff that is coming out of the POWs and uh, these interviews, these public uh, performances by the, POW, by the Russian POWs. Uh, it's useful to remember that these are prisoners of war and it is probably not prudent to judge overall morale and overall capabilities from people whose life is one way or another is in the balance of the stories that they tell, whether it is at that moment or whether it is at the prospect of them coming back to Russia. So we should be careful about that. And once again, I said that, like I said, Ukraine is fighting for its life and we should respect that because it's heroic and it's inspirational. But as consumers of information, we should be cognizant of the difference between the perspectives that are coming out from that type of a battle for survival to some of the other issues that might be important to keep in mind to get a more analytical, coherent and cohesive picture 
that we are not once again finding ourselves in a situation where we're expecting to see a different military fighting a different war, except that this time it's our military. All right, thank you. Um, Alex, if you have just a couple of real quick comment, if you have something you'd like to share, I can give you maybe a minute and then uh, we do have to wrap things up here. Well, I will just make a short uh, comment. I would, uh, since the first day when I see the poor uh, implication of the forces from the Russian side, I, I was cracking my mind why it's happened. I don't think the Russian generals are so, so, so such a stupid people. I don't believe so. Uh, so. And uh, eventually, when I started receiving information from Russia, uh, from from resources uh, close to the FSB and and Kremlin, I figure out that uh, the problem of the Russian generals was their own uh, input data. The military knows when we start uh, doing operational planning, we refer to the input uh, data, and that was a, a problem for the Russian generals because. Uh, the reason why Putin called that uh, uh, that uh, war as a special operation because from the from the Kremlin standpoint that's a, a special operation because uh, that's uh, operation conducted by FSB uh, in Desert Shield in Iraq in the second war in Iraq everybody knew who uh, the name was the commander in chief from in the United States Army in in Ukraine there's no name who who basically command the whole operation because of because that's not a, a military that uh, that was a FSB right now i know the name of that guy he he was arrested uh, several days ago but at a, but the, the general uh, the, uh, the military i mean russian generals was put in, in a hard hard place to to plan, to do uh, operational planning based on their FSB requirements army never been prepared to to fight based on that requirements at all that's why they have a problem with that. And but since and and now we can see as soon as the plan was approved by by President Putin, there is no flexibility to make adjustment of the plan and go to him and sign up again because they have to explain to him why they have to change the plan. What's wrong with the first one? And nobody wants to to do that because there is no suiciders to come to his office and, and explain that. What's what's kind of crap happening in Ukraine? A lesson about civil military relations. Yeah, yeah. I think there there are so many so many lessons about about that about um, pre planning and preparation. Um, I think a previous guest said, you know, we'll be we'll be making operational histories of this probably for decades afterwards um, as we get more and more information. So. Um, all right, Dr. Coney, I'm happy to give you any last thoughts and then we'll say farewell. Thank you for your time. I'm Please be in touch, engage on Twitter or email or whatnot. I am learning as we go through this and reassessing a lot of what I thought I knew. And hopefully uh, everyone else who is watching this space is doing so as well, because what we learn now uh, should not only inform our thinking about Europe and China, but most importantly, about ourselves. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for, for being so generous with your time. Um, Alex, thank you as well for your perspective today. And we're, we're I'm going to get, excuse me, definitely give you some more time uh, to go into more detail on these things from your perspective and your experience. To our audience as well, thank you for uh, sticking with us today. And uh, just keep in mind, we're going to have a number of uh, additional episodes coming up. We're going to continue looking at different aspects of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine here. Starting on Friday, we have another member, as I mentioned, of the Cyber Auxiliary coming on, Arvind Verma, who's going to be talking 
uh, in more detail, specifically about disinformation campaigns. And then as well, we're working on some pre-recorded episodes uh, with some special guests that we'll, we'll make available here in the coming weeks. So, uh, you know, please keep following us on our social media channels for those. And uh, for this one, I'm going to do my best to get this up by the end of today as well. So, Dr. Konia, thank you again very much for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.